Welcome to the Lumpin Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin Radio. This week, we chatted with the director of anti-gentrification group in Pilsen, held a live reading with author Anne Elizabeth Moore. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpin Week in Review for August 18, 2017. I-94 hosted a live radio show at Pilsen Community Books featuring author Anne Elizabeth Moore. Anne spoke about going on right-wing radio and morning talk shows and finding the humor in the experience. I-94, Lumpin Radio's books and literature show, airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pilsen Community Books. This is I-94 on Lumpin Radio. Jeremy Kitchen, Michael Sack, and please give a very, very big Chicago welcome to a former Chicago native now in Detroit, Miss Anne Elizabeth Moore. Thank you for welcoming me back. This world that's so polarized now, especially with the current administration, I mean, it's pointless to talk about it. We're in the middle of it. We all know that it exists. The uh, situation. Yeah. You know. Have you ever been on like a, like a right-wing you know, radio or anything? This to isn't like, right-wing radio? No. What am I doing here? <laughs> no, this is very far left. I'm saying, have you ever been on like a right-wing radio or like a, you know, an interview of someone that doesn't necessarily have your beliefs? And then the second part of the question is, did you get any flack about the um, that essay about the fashion models? Yeah. So I have like big stories about both of those. Um, and the... As an invited guest, I'm often invited into situations that, well, for whatever reason, I'm convinced are benign and then turned out to be disasters. And they're often around that question of like, oh, I thought this morning TV show would be fine. And then it's like, really? You thought like a morning talk show with a bunch of like hyper caffeinated weirdos on mainstream television <laughs> is going to be like... Hey, awesome. I hate capitalism, too. Let's party. No, they're evil. And it was a total nightmare and a total disaster. Um, but uh, most frequently, I am um, I appear in such media as the object of intense ridicule. Um, I was for a short time a member of an organization based in D.C. called Code Pink. And I was at a protest doing a cheerleading thing once and someone took a picture of me. And um, I have delightful teeth, is what I have. And so someone took a picture of me and uh, they it was uploaded onto some website where right-wing people complain about women. And they it was like like 40 pages of what a horrible person with bad teeth that should die and doesn't she have an education her teeth are so bad and also we should rape her the whole thing was just like completely and totally nuts and out of control um and that's that's my experience there okay yeah because you know it, it is funny. Yes, it is. And when, when I said right wing radio, and I meant like this, I didn't mean like this show in particular. I meant like a talk show. So I mean, we yeah. all know that yeah. we're not right wing over here. Yeah. But let me talk. Let me tell you about the model thing. Yes. Because oh, I yeah. think this happened after I saw you guys. But I was invited out to a secret uh, group of models that are activists. What? Did I tell you about that? No. no. Okay. Okay. So 
Uh, late May, I think, I was invited to speak to a group of um, models and supermodels. And there's a difference. <laughs> wait, wait, what's the difference? Uh, I mean, it's basically like supermodels are the ones that they walk into the room and you're like, oh, you're on like Vogue right now. Um, but also they treat each other differently. So like the Coles catalog and Vogue, that's model and supermodel? Pretty so, much. So there's a hierarchy yeah. here. You're yeah. saying there's like a mean girl kind of thing going on? Well, or? it's not even actually. They're delightful, kind people, which is completely terrifying. As a woman growing up in America, you think that models are going to be mean girls. You think that they're going to be horrible to each other. They are the nicest, kindest people because their entire job is making the photographer and the set designer and the makeup artist happy. Um, and I was not aware then that that would apply to douchebags they'd invited to come and talk to them about capitalism. Uh, but basically, so they invited me to come and they call themselves the Model Mafia. And they're they're literally amazing. These are women that have been working in the beauty industry for their entire life, since they were teenagers or sometimes younger, and have come to this understanding of the world totally by accident sometimes that happens to align really well with mine. So they invited me to come out and talk to them about my experiences working in the garment industry in Cambodia, but also like what I had seen in interviewing other models who are underpaid, uh, often sexually harassed, surprise, surprise. Um, very frequently, there's a lot of wage theft in the modeling industry. All of these things that directly mirror the same thing that happens in the garment industry, in which case we can take a step back and understand that actually maybe the reason that those labor sectors are all having similar problems is because they're all part of the larger garment industry. Then we can start looking at warehouse manufacturers. We can start looking at people who work in retail. And it's all the same all across the board. Women are underpaid. They are sort of encouraged to lose weight and stay weak and silent. And this is the garment industry where between one-sixth and one-seventh of the women in the world work. And guess what? They're not earning enough money. So Anyway, small rant about the garment industry in general, but the models are completely amazing. And as we were talking about these things that happen in the garment industry and how the industry operates for warehouse workers, et cetera, the models were like having this realization that some of this stuff had happened to them yesterday on a shoot. And some of them, you know, remembered about this thing that happened and started making these connections about like, oh yeah, that guy was really weird and that was uncomfortable and I should have been paid for that job. And that was pretty impressive. So for the most part, actually, I think what people are seeing in that, in, unless they're secretly not telling me anything <laughs> about it, is that those connections are surprisingly solid. Um, it's, of course, weird to be like, models and garment workers well, know, have the same because they don't have the same at all. But We take pride in reading things carefully. You yeah. know? And when I first read your thesis, I'm like, what? And then you know, I read the whole essay and yeah. it made sense. But a lot of people don't read very carefully. In fact, we had Mairead Case on last week, and 
you know. Does she not know how to read? No, she was. No, like, she doesn't know how to read at all. <laughs> no. Weird. Yeah, she's it's so literary. weird. She wrote a book. You know? <laughs> yeah, she wrote a book. She wrote a book and she doesn't know how to read. It's amazing. But Some she was like, you guys read my stuff so carefully because I, I brought up like color themes and Mike brought up something from one of her essays and she's like, the only person that noticed that was a family member and you guys read very carefully. And I was like, well, isn't that the point of a book show? And she's like, but people don't. Like, they'll yeah, review my would book be and surprised. you can tell they haven't read it yet. Yeah. So we take pride. We read everything that we have. No, you guys are great. And this is, I think I've read this three times now, so. Thank you. You want to go to the, you want to go to the yeah. orange book? Yeah. yeah. The orange book, by Let's the way, it. guys, you filled the orange book. This is pretty impressive. Exciting. So, yeah, no, it's great. This is great. Is there great. anything personal in there? There's a love note in here. Hello. All right, so uh, I'm going to start at the end. This is actually kind of a cool question. Um, and I don't know who wrote it because they didn't put their name down, so I'm going to call them Fred. Fred says, as automation across industries grows at a rapid clip, do you see any opportunity for women workers to have improved conditions domestically as well as internationally? Well, there are some interesting things happening. Um, and, and I think... The exciting thing about technology, of course, is that it's often designed to further oppression and then people see it in action and they figure out a way to make it better. Um, but stuff like 3D printing technology, which uh, there is some fear that it will actually sort of take over the garment industry and therefore just put women out of work, which would be bad unless we shifted something else up in the, uh, in the meantime does actually present an opportunity for women not to do hatefully undervalued work any longer. How we start to address that in a world where waged labor is the standard isn't clear, but it is definitely a possibility as terms like basic wage and, and living wage become much more frequently uttered that we can start to imagine a way that actually we do develop a, a basic income and people participate in labor sectors as, as required and or they are drawn to them. Um, so I do see a lot of possibility. I just don't know under this administration what is going to survive. Buildings on Air spoke to Sarah Rafson about Karyatids, a feminist architecture group that operated in Chicago during the 1970s. Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn airs the first Saturday of the month at 2 p.m. And uh, we're joined uh, via Skype with Sarah Rafson, friend of the show, second time guest. How's it going? <laughs> <laughs> it's going great, Kiefer. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, of course. Um, so, Sarah, for, for those who might not remember, maybe you can uh, give yourself a little introduction. No problem. So, um, I am an architecture writer, researcher, and curator, and um, I just founded in 2016 a, an editorial and curatorial agency called Pointline Projects. So, I do books and exhibitions about architecture. And um, we like to focus especially on, you know, underrepresented voices and marginalized stories in the discipline. So um, I think the last time we talked, we were talking about feminist activism mm -hmm. and especially the Women's March, which was really cool. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and this, this yeah. time, yeah. <laughs> 
we're talking about um, uh, some research that you just did um, on uh, karyatids, um, and you wrote it up for the Chicago Architecture Biennial blog. So, uh, yeah, maybe you, maybe you can tell us um, who karyatids were and uh, how you stumbled into doing this research and, and writing this piece. Yeah, no, I, I actually love talking about this. It was actually, it, this research came out of the thesis I did for graduates, my graduate program at Columbia. Um, I did a program that's pretty new. It's called Curatorial, uh, Critical Curatorial and Conceptual Practices. And with such an open, new format for a master's degree, I was um, really struggling to figure out how uh, to shape my thesis. And I knew I, I would just sort of had a feminist revolu- uh, revelation. I just sort of un- discovered feminism for myself. Yeah. Um, that year, and I knew that I wanted to deal with something related to the topic uh, when I understood how it could uh, integrate with architecture. Um, but honestly, it was pretty serendipitous that I found out about the karyatids in the first place. Uh, I remember distinctly the moment when I found out about them. I had heard about the International Archive of Women in Architecture uh-huh. and that they had a scholarship available for people who wanted to do research related to one of their collections. Hmm. So it was late at night, one summer night before um, my thesis year was starting. Uh, I think our perspectives were due yeah. soon. And <laughs> I was scrolling through this the collections listings at this IAWA at Virginia Tech. And, you know, I considered doing something about Zaha Hadid, something about Lena Bobardi, but I had wanted to take a more, uh, I, I found myself being more interested by activism. And when I was scrolling through and saw the words chicks in architecture refuse to yield, which is what <laughs> yeah. uh, sort of forms the first part of the acronym karyatids, I was really struck. I mean, just the that kind of language I had really never heard anything like that in our discipline, and it really resonated with me. So I did some Google searching, found a couple of Chicago Tribune articles about the group that started in 1993, um, but really not much more about them. So I thought, this is something that I'm going to take upon myself to dig into. Yeah. Uh, so that was that was how I got into it. But <laughs> what I what I found just to to keep going. Yeah, on it, please. Um, was that the Karyatids were a group of approximately 70 or 80 uh, architects and designers, both genders, both men and women, Uh, but they had three figureheads. They were three young architects, uh, Carol Crandall, Sally Levine, and Kay Janis. And their group, Karyatids, it stands for Chicks in Architecture Refuse to Yield to Atavistic Thinking in Design and Society. (laughs) So good. (laughs) So good. Uh, That was the group that they founded basically for one reason only, which was to tell the AIA their, or express to the AIA their rage, frustration, um, and struggles that they faced as women in architecture. Um, They organized around a specific event, which was the fact that in 1993, Chicago hosted the largest gathering of architects ever because it was hosting the joint convention of both the AIA, the Mm -hmm. American Institute of Architects, and the UIA, the uh, 
IUA. It's, IUA. But it's French, so it but switches around. Yeah. <laughs> International Union of Architects. Yeah. So um, because of the two combining, I, I think it happened at McCormick Place, they thought this is the venue where we really need to make our voices heard. Um, the, the group would not exist if it weren't for the Chicago women in architecture because the, that's how the three founders met. But when they found out that the Chicago women in architecture were already doing something that was a lot less confrontational, right. uh, they were just going to uh, offer tour tours to delegates through, through Chicago. Uh, the group thought, no, we need to really make our, uh, we need to bring some key issues to the table here. Yeah. So they broke off formed this radical little faction and delivered their message with a lot of humor and wit and and um, sort of expressive expressiveness that we really have not seen in architecture since. Yeah, I think. yeah. There's a very like there's a very punk uh, sort of like vibe and aesthetic to a lot of the images that come across. It's it's very um, it's very much sort of like uh, almost shock art, like not quite. It's um, um, but there was there's something in those images that was like a, a total refusal and and but but they're always linked back to very specific real like ways in which um, um, women's oppression becomes manifest in architecture which was like it was very cool to see and, and the exhibition title kind of says it all it's what was uh, more than the sum of our body parts exactly thank you for mentioning that yeah. it was more than the sum of our body parts and it took place at the Randolph Street Gallery, which is now Intuit, the uh, yes. Center for Intuitive and um, Outsider Art, which is kind of fitting. For yeah, this absolutely. Way. Well, and I, I also, uh, Karyatids, too, is such a great name because uh, there's some famous Karyatids in Chicago. Uh, and and um, the, the, the way that the word is used in architecture is as a, a, a column that is, that is in the shape of, of a, a, a female figure. Um, and uh, they are used extensively at the Museum of Science and Industry, um, and there's some, some famous ones. And so, I think there's even like you know the what do you call them like, with the cutout heads and, and the caryatids <laughs> yeah, um, in one of the images, which is very cool. It's very Chicago, but but also um, um, yeah, what a great uh, um, acronym yeah. also. <laughs> and certainly of its time too, because remember 1993, sort of peak postmodernism. So a lot That's of interest right. in classical language in architecture and being playful with it. So uh, even one of the um, one of the vignettes that they designed, which was not featured in, in that particular article, but um, it was around wrapping around the gallery was something they called freeze time. Mm. And you know, typically in a classical building, you have sort of messages or important dates or facts um, sort yeah. of inscribed at the in the freeze running along the the roof line of a building. Um, well, they took that and they used it as a way to tell a feminist history of architecture, which was kind of novel yeah. um, at the time. And so at the, in, in their archives, you can see the way that they list, the way that they place themselves within architecture history, I thought was pretty interesting and yeah. totally in the, the vein of the, the karyatids. Yeah. And actually even just to, sorry to keep going no, on that, please. but, <laughs> Um, they really owned that image of the Karyatids. Um, they have, I've seen a lot of iterations of designs for the postcards and the graphic design for their material. And they really take the Karyatid very playfully. Yeah. Um, 
for them, the Karyatid was about women's oppression. Yeah. The the um the the legend goes that the women of Kerry were, um, or uh, the women uh, they, they were taken as prisoners with the Greeks and sort of enslaved by supporting the the building's roof. Yeah. Um, but but the way that Kerry interprets it in their drawings, I think it's much more of a um sort of empowered sure. position where in the cover of their exhibition catalog, you sort of see these karyotids placed one beside the other in a way that they almost look like an army, sort of <laughs> the karyotids fight back. Yeah. The Trump Diaries. Paul Manafort is squeezed by the FBI. Neo-Nazis rally and riot in Charlottesville. One is killed in an attack. Trump unequivocally sides with the alt-right, claiming it was a so-called alt-left that was just as responsible for the carnage in Virginia. Trump's unprecedented support for neo-Nazis sends Republicans scrambling, and the FBI has arrested a hacker linked to Russian interference. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 203, August 10th. Trump continued to refuse to back down from his threats against North Korea, saying just now that military solutions were locked and loaded against the country. North Korea has threatened a first strike against the territory of Guam and outlined plans to drop missiles near the Air Force base there. And Bloomberg reports an ultrasonic device was used against diplomats in Cuba, causing permanent hearing damage. In response, the State Department expelled two Cuban diplomats from the embassy in the United States on May 23rd. Cuba denies using any such device. It has been suggested a third actor, such as Russia, may have been involved in this peculiar case. And Trump said he would declare the opioid epidemic a national emergency, but his head of Health and Human Services, Tom Price, later walked those comments back. Trump has been pressed to do so by multiple healthcare professionals. The number of opioid deaths has quadrupled in 20 years, and a third of Americans were prescribed some form of opioid drug in 2015. Declaring a national emergency meant the issue could get prioritized funding and resources from Washington. And Trump sharply escalated his criticism of the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, saying McConnell should step down. Trump told the press, quote, if he doesn't get repeal and replace done, and if he doesn't get taxes done, meaning cuts and reform, and if he doesn't get a very easy one to get done, infrastructure, if he doesn't get them done, then you can ask me that question. And The Hill reports that Scott Pruitt cast doubt on the idea that climate change poses a threat to the U.S. to his staffers, despite a recent report concluding that Americans are already feeling the effects of climate change. The EPA chief apparently has called for red team, blue team exercises to try and challenge what he says is so-called settled science on climate change. And the squeeze on Paul Manafort continues. Investigators are seeking the cooperation of his son-in-law in an effort to gain leverage over Trump's former campaign chairman and turn him into a cooperating witness. Jeffrey Yohai, who hasn't been accused of wrongdoing, is a business partner of Manafort's. In addition, Mueller has subpoenaed Manafort's bank records. Trump's lawyer called the FBI raid on Manafort's home, quote, a gross abuse of the judicial process for the sake of shock value. That lawyer, John Dowd, also questioned the validity of the search warrant, calling it an extraordinary invasion of privacy. Manafort has switched his legal team, hiring a D.C. firm known for handling complex criminal financial cases. Day 204, August 11th. Trump posted on Twitter, quote, Our military is blocked and loaded should North Korea act unwisely. It was the third warning of military action against the Koreans issued by Trump this week. Trump said he is very thankful to Russian President Vladimir Putin for expelling 775 U.S. diplomats from Russia because he said it helps him to cut down on the U.S. government's payroll. I want to thank him because we're trying to cut down our payroll, and as far as I'm concerned, I'm very thankful that he let go a large number of people because now we have a smaller payroll. I greatly appreciate the fact that we've been able to cut our payroll of the United States. We're going to save a lot of money. 
and the Freedom Caucus is trying to force a vote on an outright repeal of Obamacare, a mirror of the 2015 repeal proposal that Obama vetoed. They're seeking what's known as a discharge petition, which would enable them to bypass House leaders to put the bill up for a vote. To do so, they would need signatures from at least half the House, that is 218 members, to bring the bill to the floor. It is unlikely to succeed. Day 205, August 12th. One woman was killed and 19 others injured in violent clashes in Charlottesville, Virginia as neo-Nazis attacked counter-protesters. The city and state declared a state of emergency after a white supremacist deliberately drove a car into a group of people. So-called white nationalists carrying Nazi regalia had long planned a demonstration over the city's decision to remove a statue of Robert E. Lee in the city, but their rally exploded into violence as men armed with shields and clubs attacked counter-protesters. Chants of blood and soil and Jew will not replace us rang out from the rally. An Ohio man, James Alex Fields Jr. of Maumee, Ohio, has been arrested and charged with secondary murder, three counts of malicious wounding, and failing to stop at the scene of a crash. Virginia police have not yet identified him as the driver of the car. Trump, predictably, was the only national political figure to spread blame for the, quote, hatred, bigotry, and violence that resulted in the death of one person to many sides. In fact, many of the neo-Nazis rallying in Charlottesville were carrying pro-Trump and Pence signs. And special counsel Robert Mueller is in talks with the West Wing about interviewing current and former senior administration officials, including Rins Priebus. Mueller has asked the White House about specific meetings, who attended them, and whether there are any notes, transcripts, or documents about them. Day 206, August 13th. The White House issued a statement criticizing white supremacists for the violence that led to one death in Charlottesville more than 36 hours after those protests began. The statement was meant to clarify Trump's earlier remarks and condemn, quote, all forms of violence, bigotry, and hatred, and, quote, of course that includes white supremacists, KKK, neo-Nazi, and all extremist groups. The statement came in an email sent to reporters and was attributed to an unnamed representative. Trump came under withering criticism for all sides for his initial statement. The white supremacist who deliberately drove a car into a group of people has been arrested and charged with secondary murder of Heather Heyer. James Alex Fields has been identified as a neo-Nazi and was denied bail. Attorney General Jeff Sessions said that the, quote, evil attack meets the definition of an attack of domestic terrorism. And North Korea's successful ICBM test have been linked to a Ukrainian factory with ties to Russia's Cold War missile program. The engine design on North Korea's latest missiles match those that once powered the Soviet Union's missile fleet and are based on a technology too complex for North Korea to switch to so quickly by themselves. North Korea purchased black market rocket engines that were probably from a Ukrainian factory. Day 207, August 14th. Trump finally denounced white supremacists 48 hours after initially blaming the Charlottesville violence on many sides, prompting nearly universal criticism. Racism is evil, Trump said, and those who cause violence in his name are criminals and thugs, including the KKK, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and other hate groups that are repugnant to everything we hold dear as Americans. And an African-American CEO quit Trump's advisory council after Trump failed to initially condemn white supremacists. Kenneth Frazier, the CEO of Merck, is one of just a handful of black CEOs to run a Fortune 500 company. Frazier said America's leaders must honor our fundamental values by clearly rejecting expressions of hatred, bigotry, and group supremacy. Within minutes, Trump attacked him on Twitter, saying Frazier's resignation will, quote, give him more time to lower ripoff drug prices. It took Trump just 57 minutes to criticize Frazier. He took 48 hours to criticize the neo-Nazis in Charlotte. He has yet to condemn the bombing of a mosque in Minnesota.
In May, the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security warned Trump about the white supremacist movement and said it will likely continue to pose a threat of lethal violence over the next year. That report showed that white supremacist groups had already carried out more attacks than any other domestic extremist group over the past 16 years. And Trump believes Steve Bannon is behind the White House leaks targeting H.R. McMaster and is considering firing him. West Wing colleagues say Banning has instigated leaks to members of the far right, like Mike Cernovich, accusing McMaster of having a drinking problem and getting the right-wing Zionist Organization of America to accuse McMaster of being anti-Israel. Rupert Murdoch apparently has repeatedly urged Trump to fire Bannon. Former head of communications Anthony Scaramucci has said Trump's toleration of, quote, white nationalism by Steve Bannon is inexcusable. H.R. McMaster has refused to say he could work with Bannon. Day 208, August 15th. The FBI has arrested an Oklahoma man on charges he tried to detonate what he thought was a thousand-pound bomb, acting out of a hatred for the U.S. government and an admiration for Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh. Jerry Drake Varnell was arrested shortly after an attempt to detonate a fake bomb packed into what he thought was a stolen cargo van outside a bank in Oklahoma City. And an ISP is refusing a demand by Trump to hand over the names and data from 1.3 million anti-Trump activists. Justice has asked for the IP addresses of all visitors to a website that helped organize a protest in the day of Trump's inauguration. That ISP, Dreamhost, is refusing to comply with the request, which it calls unconstitutional and chilling. And the Congressional Budget Office said on Tuesday that premiums for the most popular health insurance plans would shoot up by 20%, and federal budget deficits would increase by $194 billion in the coming decade if Trump carries out his threat to end certain subsidies paid to insurance companies for the benefit of low-income people. And a monument to pro-slavery forces was forcibly pulled down in Durham, North Carolina in the wake of the carnage in Charlottesville. No arrests have been made yet. The mayors of Baltimore and Lexington also announced plans to remove Confederate monuments in their cities. Trump said he is seriously considering a pardon for Sheriff Joe Arapaio. The self-styled America's toughest sheriff has been held in criminal contempt for his mistreatment of prisoners. Arapaio was convicted of illegally stopping and detaining Hispanics in Arizona. Trump called him a patriot. Day 209, August 16th. In a remarkable and combative press conference that even Fox News called a train wreck, Trump aligned himself with the American neo-Nazi and white supremacy movement, claiming the moral equivalence on both sides after deadly violence in Charlottesville, Virginia. Trump questioned whether the movement to pull down Confederate statues would lead to the destruction of memorials to George Washington and claimed alt-left groups, which do not exist, were very, very violent. Trump's remarks grew disgust and condemnation across the board. Neo-Nazis tweeted their support for Trump in the wake of his comments. David Duke prominently thanked Trump for, quote, telling the truth. Republicans lined up to condemn Trump, and even normally pro-Trump outlets had a field day. The New York Post ran a sarcastic headline, quote, they weren't all Nazis. The Sun-Times wrote a headline, fake president, and the Daily News, sympathy for the devils. Trump won't visit Charlottesville because, according to Politico, why the hell would we do that? A White House official said the administration sees no upside and that whatever Trump might do in Charlottesville would, quote, be used against him by the media. Six business leaders have now stepped down from the Presidential Advisory Council, citing values as the motivation for dissing themselves from Trump. Trump lashed out at some of the most prominent executives in the country, saying that those who left his councils were grandstanding, not taking their job seriously, and were leaving out of embarrassment. AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka also quit, saying none of the councils had even met. Baltimore suddenly moved all Confederate memorials overnight. 
Hope Hicks was named the temporary communications director. The 28-year-old was a former spokeswoman at the Trump Organization. And a hacker known as Prefexor has been arrested in the Ukraine. His tools were used to hack the DNC servers, and he is now said to be a cooperating witness for the FBI. Trump's approval rating continues to tumble with Gallup now finding that just 34% of Americans approve of his performance. His approval rating among Republicans has tumbled as well to just 57%. These are the Trump Diaries. Radio Free Bridgeport spoke to the director of the Pilsen Alliance, Byron Sigcho, about how communities can learn from their mistakes and if there is a difference between small business owners and large developers when it comes to gentrification. Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday at 4 p.m. We're going to go to our first guest of the day on Radio Free Bridgeport from the Pilsen Alliance, director of the Pilsen Alliance, am I correct? That's correct. Byron, Byron Sigcho is joining us. Byron, Welcome thank you Byron. very much. Hey, man. Oh, thank you. Thank Welcome you to the much. show, man. Thank you. Thank you so much. Byron, we, uh, we got you here. Obviously, we have a benefit uh, happening at the Co-Prosperity Theater this Friday. Um, that is at 7 o'clock. But can you tell us, first of all, uh, tell, tell John and Eddie and I kind of what work the Pilsen Alliance does in the community right now? Uh, well, we are a grassroots organization that uh, we're gonna actually going to have an anniversary, a 20th year anniversary next year. And um, we do a lot of work for um, workers' rights and immigrant rights advocacy work, uh, affordable housing advocacy uh, supporting our public public schools, um, youth programming. Um, so we are grassroots and organizations made of neighbors coming together to build a sustainable and thriving community. You know, interestingly, I read a proposal the other day in Pilsen for a 30-story uh, apartment tower uh, on Canalport near the Lacuna Lofts, and I immediately thought of you because I said, I wonder what the Pilsen Alliance would think of a 30-story apartment tower towering over Bubbly Creek. And over a planned manufacturing district. Yes, over a planned manufacturing district. Uh, so, I mean, we'll, you see, like, that will, uh, that will stick up pretty, uh, quite, quite, uh, quite a bit, right? Yeah. Um, in a community that's already having issues uh, of affordability, and that's across the city. Uh, so I think, like, you know, I don't think the plan is going to move forward, but just the audacity to propose something like that um, and just uh, try to – I think one of the things that they were proposing is to say, well, we're going to set 10% aside – of affordability, affordable units, and the affordable was well, it would be a thousand dollars. Yeah, affordable for who? For whom exactly? Yeah. So, you know, I think that we we do have some issues. That's why we are very very grateful to have the you know uh, the support of the uh, of many organizations for this fundraiser to support this kind of work that is really neighbors coming together and try to advocate for policy that makes sense, policy for for the for the neighbors for the residents because it seems nowadays really become harder and harder to get uh, to get that kind of, those kind of spaces and that kind of common sense policy. Byron, did you get involved uh, 20 years ago? How did you get involved with the Pilsen Alliance? I got I got involved uh, five years ago. I got involved during the school closings. I was a soccer coach in uh, one of the uh, local schools. I was uh, in Pilsen Academy. Uh, I was a volunteer soccer coach. And, um, you know, as part of this, these issues that we keep having of, uh, of uh, more luxury homes, you know, displacement, 10,000 uh, residents have left the neighborhood because of lack of affordable housing. Affects directly our schools, um, you know, with enrollment. And uh, uh, five years ago, the the city decided to close, well, ended up closing 50 schools. Uh, but in the original list, the school where I was uh, volunteering was on the list, and that's how they decided to get involved. Um, the, you know, fortunately, you know, and thanks to community efforts, the two schools, school in Pilsen that were proposed to close are still open. Uh, Pilsen Academy is still open today. I became also the local school council uh, member for Youngman, 
who was across my, my, you know, where I lived. So I became a lot more informed about what we need to do to keep our schools open, to keep all institutions working. Now those two schools are doing well. They're level A schools. And at one point they were almost close to close. So that's how I became involved. I was in a board member uh, for four plus years. And just last year I, be- I became the director. Can you tell us a, maybe a brief history of the Pilsen Alliance from start, from when it started 20 years ago? What was the catalyst for start, starting this organization? I think displacement. I think this displacement has been happening ever since the UAC. You know, obviously, being having a university close by, I think that um, we'll see the pressure of uh, um, the university was expanding. Uh, we see um, definitely the city has a different plan. I mean, as we see, these plans are starting to take shape. Um, so there was a community congress that came together and said, well, how do we address this? And this is a global problem. This is a nationwide problem. It's not an easy problem. But I think there are things that we can do to keep uh, neighborhoods. Well, I mean, in Bridgeport, Pilsen, we still have neighborhoods that are embracing some diversity. But the, the question is how do we keep them that way? Mm-hmm. So when they don't, we're not affordable anymore, we're going to lose that. Uh, the identity and the culture thing. So almost 20 years ago, the neighbors came together. And uh, the Pilsen Alliance was uh, born out of that uh, community congress that became um, a non-for-profit. And nowadays, we're fortunately, we got, you know, we, we have a space to advocate for, for residents. That's really interesting because that's something we've talked about a lot in the show, how we can get grassroots organizations to be bigger, in fact, and magnify what you're doing in one community and talk about other communities. Because you're correct. These are issues. Bridgeport obviously has seen massive rent increases in just the last year, uh, massive house price increases. I mean, Eddie and I have been kind of floored by the fact that Houses around our neighborhoods that were selling for what one seventy nine are now going for three seventy nine. They're doubling or tripling. It just yeah. blows our minds. We have no clue why this is happening. I mean, you can blame us. In fact, it's one of the questions I wanted to ask you. <clears throat> you know, I make a joke about how the gentrification of Bridgeport's happening by uh, brown and yellow people. Right? It's the most beautiful, um, strange, strange gentrification process in the city of Chicago yet. Right? It's it's a, actually. Turning colors, right, as yeah. opposed to staying white. Yeah. When gentrification typically means that white middle class people are moving into an immigrant neighborhood and transforming it. How do you, um, you know, there's been some high profile stories in some of the local uh, media like DNA Info in which a coffee shop window is smashed. Mm. Posters are put up saying, whitey, go home. <laughs> um, some of it seems like it's a, it could be a conceptual art project. Some of it seems very sin- sincere and very real. This kind of ethnic tension you know, that's been going on in Pilsen, um, also I saw happen in Humboldt Park with the Puerto Rican community. Like They really did not like seeing white hipsters walking around the neighborhood back in the 90s. And I think you get some of that vibe today. But at the same time, those are people who are providing, you know, they're helping spend money at the local businesses, they're spending their coin. It gets very difficult to understand these processes in the real world where you're eating, drinking, shopping, on 18th Street, for example. Yeah. So what are some of the ways that, you know, uh, if, if so, if someone does make a big stink about the new coffee shop opening up, how does the Pilsen Alliance uh, relate to that? How do, What is your stance on that? Do you say, do you find out who the owners are? Does it matter what your ethnicity is? Like, how do you deal with that? Yeah. Because that's a big deal, right? Yeah, and, it, and it's true. And it has happened. It's a real, real life story. I mean, Trust was one of those uh, coffee shops that <coughs> was, you know, in found himself in these heated discussions, you know. So well, we did reach out to the to the neighbor to the owner, and we did reach out to the community in general to say, okay, well, we are here, 
I mean, that's the fact of the matter. I mean, we're here, so we're going to have to find a way to address this. And I think, like, and we always try to see, well, let's let's look at the facts. I and mean, we talk about, uh, well, is this a racial problem? So, well, we see a lot of a lot of students from UAC have been part of Pilsen for a long time. Yeah. I mean, so uh, we have seen them for a long time, too. So, and this, you know, I think that we have to make sure that we're honest about this discussion. So it's not, we cannot racialize. I mean, I think that we have already in the White House someone who, on a daily basis, is doing that. Yeah. And I think that that's at the risk of doing the same thing, right? So, and it's hard to stop when people come with their own signs and came, you know, they're angry and frustrated. But as an organization, our responsibility is to educate ourselves and educate our community to say, hey, listen, this is policy that makes sense for everyone. So it's not about like keeping a neighborhood one way or another, right? We've seen pills and changing, but it's always being immigrant, working class, affordable. And that's what we want to preserve the identity, the social fabric of the neighborhood that does not belong to one ethnicity, but it is affordable, it's working class, it's diverse. And I think that is at the core for us, that we just have more opportunities and options for our community, you know, for, for everyone, not mm-hmm. only for, mm-hmm. for, for certain people. And looking at the neighbor, the history of that neighborhood, it was Czech, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, exactly. So we, we cannot say that we, be, you know, this belongs to a particular yeah, group. Yeah, ethnic it, group, yeah. It, it just does Whenever I hear those arguments, sometimes it disappoints me in the fact that people don't know their history there. Yeah. And they use that race card in a way that's, I think, not not a good argument, not, not a winning argument. But I think what happens is when you see these kind of like aesthetic changes in terms of like a Botrus style reclaimed wood, whatever, kind of like coffee, yuppie coffee, little joint open up next to uh, uh, whatever, witchcraft, Santeria shop, <laughs> people freak out. Yeah. And they just that's how they notice that the changes are happening or it man, it's a manifestation of it. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, sometimes maybe that does raise the rent or the property values of things around it, but maybe it doesn't. But it is interesting to see how a dialogue uh, occurs around those things. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's always, and it's sometimes disappointing when it's like, if it's owned by an ethnic, if it's owned by a Mexican organization or group or whatever, then it's okay. Exactly. But if it's a white guy from Veneca, it's not okay. It's like, that's not America. That's not how we work here. Mm-hmm. If you're concerned about capitalism, about gentrification, about rent, then let's get to the real deal. Join an organization like the Pelson Alliance and fight gentrification. Yeah. Fight uh, you know, environmental pollution, environmental racism. Fight the Koch brothers destroying your hood. That's right. Not the guy who's a small businessman. He's not a global corp. Right. You know, it's very interesting. And these are these fine, you know, the way you can look at these ideas is, is, is it's really hard for see people because they need an object of derision and it's physical. So yeah. and I, think, I was I was wondering. Yeah, and I think that that's a great question because I think and it has to be directed by facts, right? So if we see like developers that come and literally they're tr- quadrupling your 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 uh, your rents, right? right? And then you, you know, need like, to name them, right? Like exactly, well, then we name them, right? Yeah. But then the mom and pop shop that is just coming in is small business. Then you, I mean, there's a difference here, yeah. right? So I think that we should maybe driven by facts and we should dream about what is really happening. So City Pats was one of them, right? But the Casas Clan <coughs> came with luxury units. That's nothing nothing to do with the community. But not only that, they come with this slogan: "This we're making Chicago great again." Now. You are a target. That, now. That's <laughs> that's know? their slogan. So yeah, I mean they oh, literally put it. No. So they took it down no. and everything. But I think you see, there's a difference there than when you when you have someone who's come and then literally. I mean, we have some people who come and want to be part of the neighborhood. And yeah. I think that there's a difference that we should not be uh, mixing them because then we lose sense. We lose our yeah. sense of uh, where we are and who we want to be. Well, that, I remember the biggest issue that people had with that was that the murals were painted over. And also one of the issues was, I just heard ancillary information or looking at gossip on Facebook, is that you can't blame these idiots who came in and bought the building and fixed it. 
You got to blame the, blame the people who operated and owned it previously, who screwed it all up. Absolutely, it was their fault for dropping the ball and not finding a solution and selling out to morons like this who put "Make Chicago Great Again" slogans yeah. on their building. Absolutely, right? Absolutely, and, and, it, and it's like a way of you got to look at ourselves in the mirror as well, right? So yes, it's, it's not one, and that's a part of education. So we learn what happened so we don't do it again, yeah, right? right? So I do think that there's, there's that, right? I think there's a sense of, well, what that space was lost in the first place. Mm-hmm. And also, so what was now, what's happening now? Mm-hmm. Or what are we dealing with now? Bigger problem. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think that absolutely, we got to be honest about these discussions. The Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. Yeah.